everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. One of the keys, I think, for us is consistency. And the more you're telling the same story in different nuanced ways, the easier you make it for other people to tell your story on your behalf. As Randy Goldberg says, no one dreams of going into the sock business. But if there is one sock company you can name off the top of your head, it's probably the one Randy built with co-founder Dave Heath. Bomba's Socks has grown from a small e-commerce company with a mission into a $100 million enterprise, and the success they've had all boils down to remembering the fundamentals. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Randy takes us through his journey to Bomba's. He details why founders need to avoid shiny object syndrome and focus their sights on the basics if they want to succeed. Plus, he talks about Bomba's culture of transparency and how to decide between leading with the company mission or the merits of the product when trying to attract customers. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey everyone, welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of mission.org. And today I'm really excited to have Randy Goldberg on the show, the co-founder and chief brand officer at Bombas. Randy, welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Really excited to have you. Thanks for taking the time. So I'd love to dive into your background a little bit before we get into Bombas. Sure. A little bit about what brought you into the world of e-commerce and starting Bombas. Yeah, I guess, you know, we have a sock company, an e-commerce sock company, but, you know, I say this a lot, but I don't think anybody ever really, you know, grows up dreaming of being in the sock business. Um, you know, it was kind of a winding path for me to arrive at Bombas and to think about this company. My background is in branding. So I was a copywriter and a strategist and I worked for digital agencies and I worked for a lot of brands through the years, you know, writing brand books, trying to find out where they had gone astray, brands that were sort of struggling a little bit. And I think through that work, I I gained a perspective on what I thought a good company looked like, talked like, acted like. And some point I moved from the agency side to the media side and I was working at a digital media company and that's where I met Dave Heath, my co-founder in Bombas. And we sort of cooked up the idea when we were working together um, way back then in 2011. Cool. So why did you guys think I want to start a sock company? Like, did you both want to start this or did one have to pitch to the other? Yeah. Well, I don't think we thought of it as a pitch. We were friends and we, you know, we were both very entrepreneurial in our Outlook. Um, our families were entrepreneurs. We, we just, I think, had that same uh, point of view on the world. And we liked the idea of maybe starting a business one day. We weren't actively, you know, 
writing things on a whiteboard and crossing off a list, but we would just talk about things and the business landscape at the time. It wasn't, we need to get this done this year. I, I, you know, we were just having a regular day and Dave was on Facebook and he saw a, a campaign that the Salvation Army had been doing with Hanes. And the Salvation Army, they had a quote in there that said, socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. And we were having lunch and Dave said, I saw this quote. Did you have any idea about socks and homeless shelters? And I said, no, and I don't even understand why. And we started to call around to some shelters in New York and we were talking to people and we just realized that there was a real problem here. If you're you know, living on the streets, a fresh pair of socks, foot hygiene means a lot. You might be walking more and have less frequent opportunities to wash your clothing. And then shelters don't accept used socks for donations. So they were always having a shortage and it was always a big need. And people would have to buy new socks and then donate them. And people just tended to donate the things that they had worn or gently used. And we, we saw, we, we really just wanted to help solve the problem. So we started thinking about that. We started buying socks and donating them. And then, you know, I guess just the way our minds work, we started to think there's probably an opportunity here. We looked at the success that Tom's had been having and saw their one-for-one -one business model. And Warby Parker had just launched at the time and they had a charitably inclined business. And we thought, you know, maybe there's this business model really works for this product. It really maps well to it. So then we started to think about socks and we just got obsessed with socks. We were like, socks just haven't changed in 50 years. The athletic socks look the same. They're cardboard, they're white or they're black. And even if you're somebody who cares tremendously about the things that you wear, where they come from, what you're putting on your body, like the last thing you get to generally is socks. So we thought there was an opportunity to make something really great, to really improve on a product that people take for granted and that are afterthought in the consumer market to help solve a problem that's an afterthought sort of for shelters and organizations. So just like if we can make something really great, we'll sell a lot. And if we sell a lot, we can donate a lot. And if we donate a lot, we can help solve a problem in the community where we work and live. It's easy to look back and say that, but at the time, it just took a while for us to wrap our head around this and you know, think about it as a business idea. Very cool. I will say that I'm definitely someone who had socks as an afterthought, but I will say when I tried on Bombas, I was like, this is a whole different level of socks. I didn't realize I cared about them at all. I would normally just get black ones and just be like, whatever, as long as they're short, I don't care. And then I tried them on. I'm like, oh, these are game changing. So they're amazing. Thank you. I, I think that's what we're going for, right? We want to change the way people think about socks and kind of make it hard for you to go back once you put on a pair of Bombas. Oh, yeah, you can't. So in the early days when you were starting up, did you how did you think through the economics of developing the one to one program? The early days for us, that meant making sure that we could, from the start, bake into the unit economics, the donation pair, so that no matter what anyone said along the path, if we were raising money, if we were building the business, that there was nothing anybody could do because we were ironclad around the donation model. And we built it into the covenant of the business. We've codified it. It's just something no one could ever really take away. But just focusing on it from the beginning and making sure that we could afford to do it as a for-profit enterprise was a big, a big early step. And, you know, we've grown and we've gotten smarter about it. And we've built a big network of giving inside of the company. So it's all gotten bigger and better. But it really started with that idea. And I think that's the right question. Did you think about it from the beginning? Yes, or else we wouldn't have been able to do it. And maybe somewhere along the road, we would have compromised. But it's been a big part of how we've talked about the business and the brand and a big part of the success of the company. And 
having a great product on the side for the consumer allows us to afford the development costs of the donation product, which is an important thing to make sure we're making a product for uh, people who are experiencing homelessness or living on the street. And all of these things have been really thought out from the start. That's amazing. And I think I saw that you reached profitability by year three. What does your revenue look like now annually? It's a multiple $100 million a year company at this point and profitable. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's what I saw, but I wanted it to come from you instead of me saying what I think that I read. Yeah, you read, you read correctly. Yeah. So profitability, I, I think you're seeing a lot of direct-to-consumer companies and e-commerce companies now really starting to think about profitability in this moment and the way that people are raising money and what companies who are handing out money have been looking for. It's forcing a lot of companies who have raised a lot of money and are had profitability as a down-the-road kind of goal, shift how they're operating and shift how they're thinking. And I see that and I've talked to founders who are dealing with this and it seems really painful. I think for us, it was a goal from the beginning. We wanted to have a really solid, conservative financial outlook, get to profitability quickly, build a business for the long term, for the long haul. You know, We want our grandkids to be wearing Bombas. That's one of our core values. So I think that plays into the way that we built the business from the unit economics and financial side of things as well, and the way that we approach marketing, which obviously, as you know, as a direct-to-consumer company, is the hot topic, of course. Yep. So were there any issues that you ran into along the way? Because scaling to over 100 million revenue is probably pretty tough. Is there any lessons you learned along the way or things that you're like, oh, we did this great, or we maybe should have done this a bit different? I think the number one lesson is about focus, right? Um, Know what you do really well. Know why your company exists, why your product deserves to exist in the world. And then focus on doing that well. Focus on telling the same story over and over and over again. Whenever we've been able to really focus on that product, on the donation, on on the sort of foundational elements of the business, that's when we've done the best. And that's when the company has grown really well. When we've gotten distracted by, hey, let's try this pop-up and, you know, pop-up retail idea, or let's advertise in this new place that is unproven, but seems good for this one specific reason. And it's taken our focus away from the things that we do best. That's where we've had the most trouble. So I think that's been the big theme for us in the early years. It's just focus has really led to growth and um, it's where we've had the most success as a company. Very cool. So when thinking about the first conversion or a brand new customer, do you think the social good aspect of the business sells the product initially? Because it's pretty hard to convey how good the socks are on the website. Yeah, it it is. It's hard until you, I guess, you try them on and we just want to get as many socks on feed as possible. But yeah, you know, there's been a constant debate at Bombas since day one about what comes first in the way we talk about the company, the quality of the product, comfort. And or the mission, right? And our our commitment to give back to the community. And some people come for the product and stay for the mission. And some people will come for the mission and stay for the product. I don't think we've solved that debate. We pull our customers and we're surveying people and we're thinking about this a lot. But I, I think for the thing that works the most in marketing, you know, for prospects, people who haven't heard about our company is talking about comfort, is talking about the quality of the product. And the mission definitely helps complete a sale, helps with the follow-on sales. And our customers, people who've already made purchases, 
expect us to close the loop, report back on how we're doing with the donations that we promised we would do on their behalf. So that storytelling element helps us helps us with both sides of it. And it's just about where we show up with the mission and where we show up with the product marketing at what time and what time in the life cycle. And, um, so it's an ongoing debate and we stay nimble around it, but uh, those are still the two elements and they have been since the beginning that, that show up the most in our communication. Cool. And the other thing I saw that you all had was the happiness guarantee, which I was like, how do they remain profitable? Because one of the things I think I saw in there was if you're kid outgrows a sock in a year, which I have three kids. So I'm like, that could yep. happen quick. Or if your dog chews up a sock, which yeah. our dog Toasty does that every day. How do you make sure that people aren't abusing those rules? And what, is, like, how did you come up with that happiness guarantee? I think for us, just we think about the great companies that we all like to work with or shop at or interact with. And a common theme is that they have great customer service and they stand by their products. And we just, we wanted to make that a hallmark of Bombas. In the early days, Dave would take all of the calls that would come in to our phone number on his cell phone. So we would be out talking about the business or at a bar or back when there were bars. And you know he would get a phone call and go outside. And an hour later, he'd come back and he'd just talk to a customer. So I think that idea of just making sure that we're taking care of the people who are spending money with us, that led to the idea of the happiness guarantee. And we have our internal customer service team. They're called the customer happiness team. And we've also just sort of connecting it back to the business to get back to your question. People who interact with our customer service team have two times the lifetime value of customers who don't. So we're trying to turn issues that people have into positive experiences. And that turns people into bigger long-term customers because then they trust us. They trust that we take care of them. So sure, there are people who try and abuse the policy but that's far outweighed by the, the, the number of people who are just trying to solve a problem or get to the bottom of something and you know, want things to be right and don't want to have to jump through a lot of hoops to get there. So for us, the good of having that really strong internal team to deal with our customers and to respond to problems and yes, to like make sure that if your kid outgrows a sock that's expensive or we'll be there to grow along with you, all those things are we just want peace of mind as people go through the process and think about, should I be making this purchase right now? That's great. How do you train your customer happiness team? Because I feel like it takes a certain kind of person to be peppy and to, like you said, have a higher lifetime value with the people who interact with that team. Like what kind of training process do they go through? It's pretty rigorous. Um, you know, I, I think Dave passed on the, the mentality of our customer happiness team to the person who originally ran the program and he's still running that team. So I think like almost everything at Bombas, when, when we have something that we want to do and we feel like we've reached the limit of how we can handle it ourselves, we try and bring in people who are way smarter than we are and have the right skill set and really focus on hiring great people. It also helps that people who come to work at Bombas tend to want to give back to the community and are inclined to support and work for a company that cares about that as well. And then we in turn care tremendously about our company and the company culture. And all of those things lead us to find, I think, the people who are right for the roles and right for the company and speak to those core values. And that's how it works with the happiness team. So they're trained not only on what to say in the situations that come up most often, but how to deal with Bombas customers, how to put the extra spin on it. And it's about I guess, just that level of care. And 
our whole team really appreciates that customer service team and we make sure that they know how appreciated and important they are as the first line of defense for our customers internally as a team. So I think giving them the support and I don't know, love that they need as a as the team that has to deal with a lot and has to clean up mistakes when they happen and make sure that everybody's happy and then understanding how we want them to communicate with the world as a brand. You know, the way that we talk in an ad versus a video versus on the phone with the customer versus internally, none of that should really be different, right? We're trying to be really consistent as a brand. Mm-hmm. How do you create that consistency? Because I can see as a company grows, and I've seen this happen before, where you start developing silos and the teams are kind of, you know, off doing their own thing, maybe trying their own marketing campaigns, and it starts getting a little bit chaotic. How have you kept a consistent culture and feel at Bombas? We're not immune to some of the issues that you just brought up, um, but just recognizing it, being honest about it, trying to get ahead of those things um, and focusing on that core messaging and, and communicating well internally. Um, you know, we're also at the stage where we're really thinking about planning and processes as a company as we've grown to 150 employees and being remote, you know, how we interact and how we work cross-departmentally those types of things are at the front of mind right now. And we're hear it from our team. We listen to ideas. We're bringing people to help us. And I think we're just, we're laser focused on making sure that some of those breakdowns and that siloed work doesn't get the best of us. Um, but, you know, we have seen that and, and, and we're working on it. I mean, I, I think any company that starts off operating like that, when you have five or 10 people, that would be overbearing. And I don't think the type of people who end up coming to a company that small would appreciate that. But as you grow, you have to adjust and you have to get ahead of it so that people keep that same feeling of freedom um, in terms of thought, in terms of how they can innovate in their work and get things done and expectations around their jobs. All that stuff becomes really important to be more documented, to have tighter processes so that people feel freer to do the things that they love to do. And that's what we're trying to work on. But it's not, it's not an easy thing. Yeah, it's definitely a tough juggle. And if someone were to join in their employee number five, and then all of a sudden there's 150 employees, it's like, okay, well, I used to be able to do everything at the company. And now you want me to kind of shrink my role. A tough yeah. thing to kind of work through with employees. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a challenge, right? I mean, you want to retain the people who made Bombas Bombas, um, but you also want to make sure the people are growing in the right way and their opportunities and the new people who come in at certain levels, understand what they're supposed to do and what everybody else is supposed to do. And you just start to get into these things that maybe you thought you would never have to deal with if you start a company. But as it grows, this is this is what it looks like. Yep. Were there any resources that you leveraged along the way when you were growing quickly where you're like, I need to learn this or I need to figure this out or uh, companies that you were kind of watching to learn from? I think that's been our mindset since the beginning, you know, just from our early advisory board, just to fill in the gaps um, to hires that we've made the things that we tend to lean on are people, right? So, you know, if Dave and I are like, we don't know the first thing about performance marketing. When we started this business, we need to bring in somebody who's an expert in that, or at least, you know, have somebody on our advisory board who can help answer questions for us as we grow that until we have that right person or to help us find the right person. So that's been a big part of how we've grown this business is leaning on, you know, our network to reach out to people, to ask questions, to make good hires. And then, you know, watching other D2C companies and having a good, I don't know, dialogue with the other D2C companies who have grown to our size and larger, that's been really helpful as well. 
And then you also think about companies like Tom's, right? They've been really helpful to us in terms of watching out for certain mistakes that they've made along the way with their donation aspects of their business. And they've been really open with us about those things and helping us avoid them. And, you know, we try and do the same with other companies who reach out um, and want advice from us as well. Very cool. How did you think about building out the website? What kind of things did you want to have on there to make sure that you kept with the brand story, but also, you know, sold enough to be able to be profitable to keep the model working? That's a great question. I mean, the idea of what a website looks like when it's your only store is so important, right? You want to have that right blend of storytelling, but you want people to be able to breeze through the the checkout process the right way. And that's been a journey for us. And I, I don't think it's anywhere near where we want it to be. But I, I would think that you would ask any direct-to-consumer company and they have a lot they want to do. And their, their technology roadmap is pretty long. And that's part of it, right? You're always building. You're always tweaking. You're always improving. You're looking at the data, and you're you're making changes to just make it better. Um, you know, in the beginning, at some point, we had to replatform, and just the processes along the way to get us from where we started to where we are now to where we're heading. It takes a lot of a lot of care and attention. You know, like I said, when it's your when it's your only store, I think it's your job and your duty to make sure that it, it works and operates really well. Yeah, completely agree. How did you know it was time to replatform? And what was like, what was that experience like? I knew it was time when we just had so many issues with the with the managing traffic or the back end or you know, uploading content. We it just it was wrong. You know, I, we launched the business and the website in 2013, you know, and mm-hmm. since 2013 there've been a lot of a lot of changes in technology and um the way that e-commerce works and looks and and if you went back to a site from 2013 as a 2020 consumer, you wouldn't last, you know, a minute. You'd be out. You know, bounce it, right away. <laughs> bounce. There was a lot more tolerance then, um, but less people using e-commerce because this, the experience just wasn't great. And I think if you go back even further, and I think about this a lot, right? If you were starting a direct-to-consumer company in 2009. And you were a small, you know, you didn't have a lot of money that you had raised. Building the website itself would have been prohibitively expensive for most brands, for most companies. But if you managed to get it up, the marketing was basically free. There was no algorithm that was holding your content back. But then as it shifted now, if you're able to, if you want to launch a direct-to-consumer company, you know, the technology is basically free, getting that website up, but the marketing is prohibitively expensive. It's totally flipped. And we just happened to kind of launch, I think, in a sweet spot where the technology had gotten more affordable and the marketing was still affordable, but, you know, it was not free like it had been in 2009 and it wasn't very hard or challenging environment like it is now. So we sort of had time to figure out both pieces and we had runway to figure out the marketing and we could afford the technology and then that got a lot better and, you know, just sort of have to stay on top of and ahead of all those things. Yeah, that makes sense. So to focus on the website piece first, and then we can jump into the marketing sure. aspect for the website. Was there any like big fundamental changes that you made where you're like, this made the biggest difference when it came to sales and conversions and even getting traffic in the first place? Anything that you remember from that you changed where you're like, this had the biggest improvement for us or a couple things? Site speed, I think is the number one. 
thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a person comes from the creative side of the business, a copywriter or a strategist, there's nothing that, that I could do from my previous job or, you know, as a brand person that would make the improvement of a one second of site speed in terms of how something loads or how it acts. So, you know, just sort of getting over some of the sort of shinier objects and just saying, oh, if we change the copy here or, you know, what if we like put this video here or had this type of a look on our site? If you make your site faster, you will con- it will convert better. And things like that, just understanding the fundamentals of the way things move and what people want from you, you know, layering the other stuff on top then becomes just sauce and becomes fun. And then you can start to have incremental changes and things that work. But I think just looking at site speed, if you want one good thing, that's, that's where I would start. Um, yeah. as sort of dry as that might be, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's a great one. Was there any, anything affecting the site speed that you were surprised by? I think sort of the way that you manage and load images obviously has a big effect on that. So, you know, your product architecture and understanding some of these things you don't realize when you're starting out, but, you know, the way things are organized, hosted, served, um, there's, there's sort of, best in class ways of doing that now. But if you want to have uh, your variants of your products perform a certain way, or if you want to create bundles in a different way than most companies do it, then all of a sudden you're creating, you know, you could be creating extra things that are weighing your site down, even though you think it helps you organize the things that you want to sell the way that you see them in your mind. It doesn't always benefit you because maybe you're slowing things down. And if people are bouncing before they're even seeing it, then what's the point? So, um, again, like this isn't my area of expertise, but these are the things that you learn along along the road when you're doing everything in a business when there's five people. Yeah, yeah, I think that backend infrastructure piece is hard to focus on in the beginning because you're so excited about the product and the marketing, and like you said, getting good copywriting and telling your friends that you don't really think about how to set up maybe the data and the backend piece to actually create a good performing website. Totally. I mean, listen, like I said, my background was in branding. I was a copywriter. We, I think we built this business around the brand because it's in many ways a commodity that you turn into a brand. And you do that by being really consistent and having good storytelling and build, like, build a moat through brand. But none of that exists if you don't get the infrastructure piece right. So... One thing I saw that you guys were doing was that you were investing in a data science team and embedding more data elements into the customer journey. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how you knew it was the right time to bring on a team like that? How you know it's the right time is that when you start to ask questions that you can't answer and that nobody (laughs) (laughs) internally can answer it. I mean, that's the truth. You also know when you're, you're having a debate about, you know, something in the business and somebody is able to pull out data or a statistic related to what you're talking about. And the conversation ends because it's hard to argue with the data. And when you see that and you've thought about it the other way and you can't convince data, right? Like I know there's ways to manipulate it. That's right. And then you sort of think this is really valuable. And Rather than trying to, to think about something from the perspective of, I think it should work this way, it's you, wanna, you want something to show you how it should work. And you want to be able to interpret data the right way and be able to use it to your advantage to build out a strategy rather than you know, just making assumptions and going off of somebody who has the most experience or who has the most seniority. And I think companies get in trouble 
wherein they just sort of rely on the loudest voice in the room or somebody who's the most persuasive at arguing rather than, you know, bring data as a voice into the room for decision making. I think it started to creep in when we would understand a little bit what we don't know and then have debates that were a little bit out of our depth and we didn't have the right people. So we didn't really have that skill in the beginning. We knew, we knew that it would be a big part of this business even back in 2013. We just knew that it wasn't the first thing we were going to invest in. So it just sort of came naturally to the time. We were, we were always like excited about the idea of what a data science team could bring to the table for, for, you know, even for a SOC company. There was a point where you almost can't operate without it anymore. Yeah, that's awesome. So what, is, what does it look like now having that team? And what kind of metrics are you guys paying most attention to? I mean, you know, a lot of the metrics are the same. You know, you'll see a lot of e-commerce companies paying attention to. But what the team looks like and what, what's interesting is now that we have the team in place, you know, getting other teams to work with that team the right way is the key. And getting our directors and decision makers like accustomed to, you know, partnering with the data team to help surface, you know, solutions to problems and present them and work. You know, it's, it goes back to some of the work that we're doing, trying to, f- to figure out the processes and cross-departmental work and to avoid some of the siloed behavior that you brought up earlier. And a big part of that is the data team and how they can help support. You know, there's support teams within an organization. There's execution teams. And that's very much a support team. And they love answering questions for teams. And teams use, some teams use the, the data and analytics team more than others. And we just try and be really loud about it at our all hands meetings and present back case studies so that people understand, you know, how they could better use that team. So it's a process and something that was getting better all the time, but you know, you just sort of have to have to make it central to how you operate as a company. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's a big change. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely have seen business intelligence teams in the past, struggle with being able to create a partnership with the product team or the engineers. And I like that idea of showing a case study. So instead of pushing it on a team member, it's like, well, here's what another team did. Look how great this turned out and kind of encourage them to want to partner with that team even more. If you wanted to ask a question, like how often should we do a sale? There's logical times of the year when you think that should happen. And the merchandising team might have a different perspective than the marketing team. And using the the data team to think about the effect on customers or prospects. And there's so much information that could help steer a decision like that, that that is major to the business. You know, those are the types of things where you start to see a lot of power um, in, in the team like that. So we're talking about data. I wanted to kind of also shift into the aspect of transparency. I read that you and your co-founder both had subpar experiences with transparency at previous companies you were at. So I want yes. to hear, how do you think about being, well, first tell me the story. I want to know all the nitty gritty details. And also how did that influence your culture now? Sure. The cliff notes is that it was a major influence on our culture now, but uh, we, we had that the experience together. So like I mentioned, we worked together at a previous company and at that company, the person who ran the company brought amazing people together and there was a great team and the work was fulfilling and we learned a lot, but it was really hard to have conversations around career growth or compensation or how well is the company doing or <laughs> data. And, you know, one person tended to hold on to decisions for so long that 
you know, it was counterproductive and it was demotivating for people. And you felt nervous to even ask a question and nobody understood their stock options. And you would ask questions about it and you'd get a response months later. And that sort of fogginess around the things that people really care about when they're going to work at a smaller company, it was really hard for us. And, you know, we knew no matter what company we started together, building a culture of transparency where people were people really understood the why behind the business, the core values, the financial performance, what their ownership meant, and a culture of being able to ask questions that was that was a hallmark from the beginning. We just wanted to create the company that we would have loved to have worked at and centering our employees in the business and thinking about them just as much as we do our bottom line. Our theory was that it would make the bottom line better. People would be more inclined to, you know, give something beyond beyond their capacity or to continue to learn or to grow if they felt safe and supported at the company. Cool. Yeah, that definitely is a good way to build a company from the ground up and maybe not fun to have that experience, but hey, you learn from the best people you work for and the worst people you work for. Absolutely. I I mean, I, I wouldn't trade that experience because that's what led to the culture that we've built at Bombas. And I think, you know, if you talk to our employees and, you know, the, the way they think about it, we're maybe more proud of that than anything else that we built in this company. Did I give you enough nitty gritty details? Is that, is that good enough? Yeah. I mean, I was hoping okay. for a little more drama, but I'll take it. That was I mean, there good. was plenty of drama. <laughs> we can talk about that offline. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. So uh, earlier I mentioned, I also want to hit on your marketing a little bit. What kind sure. of channels do you focus on? What are you seeing success in right now? And any new channels that you're excited about? Yeah. I mean, Listen, we're a direct-to-consumer company that started in 2013. Can you guess what our number one marketing channel is? Um, Facebook? Bingo. Right. Okay. (laughs) So I think we still see a lot of success um, there. And while it might have been a a way larger percentage of our, our marketing mix in the early days, and we diversified away from that a fair amount, it's still an important driver for us. You know, in the beginning, in the early days, we would create a video that we didn't even intend to be an ad, just a thank you to our customers. And then eventually it gets turned into an ad on Facebook that's seen a hundred million times. So, you know, leaning into the trends and trying to see around the corner at Facebook and now working closely with that team has really helped grow our business. And, you know, one of our, one of the things that we have had since the beginning is ROI positive or break even on first purchase. So we are not, over our skis on Facebook spend, I think the way a lot of companies are to just to try and build up their customer base. For us, it was important to really be disciplined. And we knew that if we were going to grow our budget and grow our company and we were a really marketing-led company, we'd have to diversify away. So, you know, hello, podcasts, radio, direct mail, TV. Uh, those are all, you know, big parts of the business now and they're all growing up probably at a faster rate as a percentage, at least, of the business than, than our online ads on Facebook. Um, but, you know, search has grown for us tremendously in the last year and a half as, the brands grow, as our brand has grown and recognition has grown. Some of that comes from broader marketing, like on TV, and then people are searching Bombas by name, and we can lean into search advertising, and that works better. You know, some of these things are just about timing. So we still have a tremendous success sort of trialing things out online, We've never used a creative agency um, 
everything is internal um, at Bamba. So all of our creative direction and the marketing team and the partnership between the creative team and the brand teams and the marketing team kind of operates as an internal agency. So we like places where we can test things, test creative, test lines, test different cuts of videos, see what works, preview it, and then build it out into bigger campaigns um, that could work across all those different places that we talked about earlier that I mentioned. So I know that's sort of more of an overview than what's working now. But, you know, if I think about the last few months um, and sort of when everyone's at home, uh, COVID, people who are still able to afford to be buying things right now online are looking for comfort and socks have done well in this moment. And on the other side of things, you know, we talk a lot about our efforts in the community and how we've adopted and been able to, you know, help out in this moment above and beyond how we normally do. And that's also something that people want to hear about. So for us, the, it's, it's the combination of the product and the storytelling and the marketing mix and making sure that we're nimble enough in all three of those places to make adjustments as we, as we build and grow. That's awesome. Do you find that you have a community also? Because it seems like with your story and your brand, you would have this community of people who want to lift you up and talk about you and spread the word organically without you really having to push too hard? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, a community is a big word at Bomba, something that it ha- has been since the beginning. You know, I think about the community of giving partners that we have, right? In the beginning, when we wanted to donate the socks, you know, we buy, we buy a pair and we donate a pair on your behalf. We didn't know how to do that, right? So we started with one giving partner that would accept socks from us and we learned a lot from them. And then we, we built a specific sock that we donate that's more tailored to the needs of the homeless community. And since then, now we have 3,500 giving partners across all 50 states. And these are the people who are working really hard on the front lines, um, helping out that community and doing what they can to serve their communities. And our job is to support them. And that is a big community. We get a lot of feedback from them. Then you have our customers who really care tremendously about the product and the donation aspect of it. And they're telling our story on their behalf. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about one of the keys, I think, for us is consistency. And the more you're telling the same story in different nuanced ways, the easier you make it for other people to tell your story on your behalf. And that word of mouth marketing or letting people explain to somebody else when they're having dinner that, you know, hey, they just got these socks and like, they're really excited about them. And, you know, they donate a pair for every pair they sell. And they also just happen to change the way they feel about putting on a pair of socks in the morning and they feel more supported and comfortable in their daily life. That's a pretty amazing thing that you can get somebody talking about socks at dinner. So I think all of this stuff is related, making sure the messaging is tight, keeping that internal, having a marketing team that's nimble and always trying new, different, new and different areas. And then having that product that's really high quality to support all of that, you know, to give you the confidence to go out and sell something. Yeah, that's great. How did you... Like, how do you keep things organized? Because I'm thinking about, you know, you have all these community organizations that you're mentioning uh, to do the one-to-one program. Then you've got your own product that you need to focus on. Like, how do you make sure that you're spending the right amount of time with each area? You don't want to be playing whack-a-mole, I guess, right? You want to be seeing yeah. ahead of things a little bit. So there is a certain element of making sure, you know, you start to see when some friction comes into a certain side of the business and you need to spend a little bit more effort, you know, getting your go-to-market process ironed out or on the technology side, if we don't install an ERP process in the next X amount of time, we could see a lot of trouble. I, I think that starts with a leadership team that communicates really effectively, often open, and is really humble. And then 
syncing up on our company roadmap and making sure that when something does seem like it needs a little bit more attention that, you know, people spend their time on it. And, you know, that's kind of the idea. And, and I guess some of that is also thinking about and talking to companies that are, you know, a year or two ahead of us and have been through some of these, you know, sort of growing pains at the same times and looking for the pitfalls that they went through and trying to get ahead of it rather than to have to be reactionary. The D2C community seems like they're uh, very helpful with each other. And you just mentioned looking to someone who's maybe two to three years ahead of you. Have you utilized that community and leaned into it to get advice or, you know, build friendships or mentorship? Yeah, it's, it's a great community. I mean, you know, for us, we're a pretty open group. We talked about transparency as, uh, and communication as pillars of Bombas from the beginning. Um, we want to help out other companies who are coming up behind us. And then we've looked to other direct-to-consumer companies and other just generally just good companies to try and help us out. And, you know, you ask the question and you find that people are, are generally willing to say like, yeah, this is how we did this or connect with this person on our team. And they know that at some point they'll have a question for you. And we've, we, we've always been just sort of, you know, asking questions outside of the organization. It's the same approach with hiring, right? We want to bring in people who are smarter than we are. We want to ask the questions of the companies who are ahead of us. You don't, you don't get the answer if you don't ask the question. So it's just an important thing. And I'm not sure why this group of companies especially is more open or collaborative seeming than other groups that you've been in, but maybe it's this generation of founders and the way that we grew up and, you know, the interest in community and the expectation from customers that a company just can't look the way it used to look or act the way it used to act. And it has to have more of a purpose. And maybe that just drives us all to be a little bit more open and a little bit more flexible and a little bit less guarded about some of the things that we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it also just seems like there's so many opportunities there's, it's not like you're going to be talking to someone who's doing exactly what you're doing. Like there's just so many opportunities and so many things to start and try that I'm sure that also helps with people wanting to share and uh, yeah, show how they did things. I don't really feel competitive with anyone in that space, right? In some yep. ways, those companies, you could see them as more of our competition than another stock company because we're competing for the attention of people online, right? And it doesn't matter what you're selling. If somebody else is taking away time that somebody might be spend thinking about Bombas, then I guess that's competition. But approaching it from a lens of collaboration and like, you know, if they can help us and you know, we can help somebody else, I don't know, it's just the way we've done it. And I'm not sure it's right or it does feel like it's helped us. And it, it is nice to feel like there is a community around this. And I like to think about these companies. I like the community of the businesses, you know. I'd rather be lumped in with these companies as a community of people that can help each other with the business side of things than on the brand side of things. You know, I'm kind of wary of being, you know, one of the direct consumer brands out there because I don't feel like that, that set of companies is always looks the best or the type of press that, that is out there is always positive, you know? So for me, it's mm -hmm. just about the people running it and the people at these companies and making sure that people on our teams are connecting to people who've done something that they maybe don't know how to do perfectly. Awesome. All right. So before we jump into a few higher level e-commerce themes, I wanted to hear what is the best day in the office look like for you? Oh, the office. Remind me, uh, remind me of what an office is. <laughs> like, <laughs> What's the best day from your bedroom look like? <laughs> it is interesting to think about at home versus at the office. The office yeah. is a big part of who we were as a company and getting, getting everybody together and that spirit of 
community that comes into it and being able to sit down with someone face to face, you know, we do miss that. Although the team mm-hmm. is really productive and risen to the challenge of working remotely. The best day feels like when something goes well or beyond what you expected and teams are celebrating each other and recognizing each other. And also when we have a speaker from one of our giving partners to give us perspective on, you know, what's happening in our work life and why maybe it's not the most important thing in our life and in our world. Um, And when all of those things are kind of clicking together, I think people remember why they work at this company, what's truly important, how they can impact it, and then the collaboration and the spirit that comes along with it. Those are the best days for me when you're sort of reminded of what's important and how that impacts the company. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to document those days too. I really like there's a mm. coffee shop, Phil's right up the street, and they have all these pictures of their employees and just having fun and team meetings they have. And it's on the way, like when you're headed to the bathroom. But it's really fun, I would think, as an employee, but also as a customer to kind of see and remember like what it felt like that day and how excited this person looks when they're receiving this award. And because sure. um, it seems like it could be easy to forget when something's moving so quick. Totally. I love that idea. I mean, you know, I also think about the times when we all got to volunteer together. Now we tend to volunteer in smaller groups, um, which is obviously still great. And you know, we have sign-up sheets for all of our volunteer opportunities and you kind of have to pounce on them to get the spots that you want. Um, and I think that speaks a lot about the culture of the company. A higher level e-commerce question. What do you think the future of online shopping looks like, like in 2025? Uh, like when we're all you know, driving around in flying cars, what does e-commerce look like? Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm in Mars. Um, I'm on Mars. You're Where on are you? Mars. <laughs> I might be on Mars too. If you want to have a rival colony, I'm down or maybe we have okay. a collaborative colony. Oh, I'm down. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> okay. Figure it out then. Um, I, yeah, depends if you accept my LinkedIn request, I guess. Then I'll oh, know. I'll be okay. like, is Randy cool or not? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's how we judge if you're cool is if you accept the LinkedIn I just, request? I just made it up, but we'll see. Okay. I might have higher criteria afterwards. Mm, okay. All right. We'll put a pin in that. I don't know what the future of e-commerce looks like. I got to tell you, I know the percentage of people who get comfortable shopping online is only going to go up. I know that Companies are going to invent new ways to make it easier for people to buy their product, to review their product, to look at it. So I, I, I think ease is, is, the, is the name of the game. And, you know, in a world that's going to be more and more competitive, the way to stand out is going to change. You know, all I know is it's not going to look like it looks right now. And having the attitude that even if you're doing something right, the way to succeed in a few years is it's going to be a different version of, of right, then you'll be okay. You know? Yep. Yeah. I love that. All right. Before we move into the lightning round, um, anything that you want to share that we missed? And you're like, I really wish you asked this, Stephanie, and you just didn't. No, like I said, you know, I'm here for you guys. You want to talk about, you know, Mars and, uh, you know, product That's infrastructure, <laughs> then great. You, you know, you want whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Mars and the moon. That'll be the next podcast. Anyone who wants to sponsor it, hit us up. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but uh, Randy and I'll figure it out. All right. Lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer, Randy. Great. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. What's up next on your reading list? Up next on my reading list is the Mike Nichols book. I'm not sure what it's called, um, but What's it excited about? to read it. It's about the director, Mike Nichols, um, and his life. 
our producer Hillary will find the link to that and yeah. you can go explore I it don't there. I tend to read um, like business books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, I know that they could be, you know, helpful, but I'm more interested in people, humanity, fiction, novels. Cool. Any podcasts you listen to? Yeah, uh, there's a great podcast I listen to about words called The Illusionist. Illusionist with an A. Love that podcast. So, I mean, I have a whole list, but let's just let's just do one. Yeah, we'll check that out. Any hobbies that you're really getting into these days? I really like this sport called paddle tennis. Um, it's not pickleball. It's not ping pong. It's called paddle tennis. And okay. if you look it up, it's like a fast version of tennis. You play with a paddle and a tennis ball, but you poke a hole in it. And there's like a really small but passionate community around the sport. It's really fun. Do you play on a tennis court? You play on a small tennis court. So it's basically the service boxes and a two-ish foot baseline and a net. And you serve underhand and you can't serve in volley. And you poke a hole in the tennis ball so it doesn't fly everywhere, but it still bounces. And it acts and feels like tennis, but like a faster version. It's really fun. Ooh. You can play in New York. There's courts in New York in Stytown and Peter Cooper Village. And there's courts in Venice Beach in California. And those are kind of the two centers in the U.S. It's not a very big popular sport. We will have to bring it up to Palo Alto. I will yeah. be the one to do that. I'll, do that'll it. be my initiative over the next year. <laughs> do it. All right. If you were to have a podcast, what would it be about? And who would your first guest be? I don't know. Do we need another podcast? Do we need a podcast from me? Yes, we do. Maybe it would just be rants, you know? We could just like yeah. do like a short rant like every week. I like that. Hey, those seem to do well sometimes. All right. This one's slightly harder, so you might have to think. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? I think the, the thing that will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year is the timing on reopening um, the economy and stores and retail. If people can't go to stores or don't feel comfortable go to sh- going to stores, they're going to inevitably accelerate their comfort level with shopping online. And we already see that happening. And I think it's just going to push that trend line even further forward. And I'm, for one, excited about it. Um, And I think the biggest, biggest test for this will be this Q4 in the holiday season and to see what percentage of shoppers are shopping on e-commerce and what they're demanding of e-commerce retailers that they weren't a year ago when the percentages were smaller. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. Great answer. Randy, it's been a blast having you on the show. Where can people find out about you and Bombas? You can find out about Bombas at bombas.com and, you know, everywhere else you would expect. B-O-M-B-A-S. And that's it. Thank you for listening. And thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been fun. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.